Every now and again, I just want to give extra praise to an actor for absolutely nailing it in the way they present themselves and what they do. And in this case, that praise goes to both Armin Shimmerman and Mary Crosby, both of whom are awesome in this episode. While this is functionally a romance of the week, the two actors manage to sell it hard enough, uh, no pun intended, that I'm willing to buy it. Like I feel like there's some legitimate chemistry between the actors, and that there's a little more nuance to it than there usually is. And I think that is on the strength of two things. The actors, like I just mentioned, but also the fact that this is a pre-existing relationship. A lot of what is uh, between these two is presumed or hinted at rather than established on camera. And I think that works to its benefit because if you're doing this kind of a romance of the week, you only have like 40 minutes to work with, and of course, inevitably, it has to break up as well. So you have to cover meeting, falling in love, the good times, and then breaking up, or dying, or whatever ends up happening. Now, as I've said before, Star Trek has occasionally pulled this off well. Uh, there's an episode of TNG with Picard, of all people, that actually does that pretty well, in my opinion. But I think this is another one of those good examples. I also like a lot of little touches here. I'm only going to talk about a few, because most of them are towards the beginning and end of the episode. Right at the beginning, it starts off with a Cardassian ship that is under fire. It's like, oh my gosh. And Kira, who doesn't have a lot of lines in this episode, nevertheless, not a visitor, does some good stuff with her body language. Her voice is all business, but her body is unusually taut. And you could just see how irritable or angry or whatever you want to call it she is about this, because that's a Cardassian ship that's out there, and, I mean, screw them, right? <laughs> But she doesn't actually say that, nor does she actually do that. Number one, she has obviously grown a little bit since you know her events in Duet. Uh, but number two, she's far more prof too professional to allow this to actually get in the way of her job. So I do like that. Little touch, little touch. I also like the fact that there is security present when they open the door. Can I just say that little touches like this are what I love about Deep Space Nine when it's at its best? You don't have to say it. You don't have to pause the episode and have someone say, Security, meet me in the deck. There's some Cardassians coming, and they might be trouble. You don't need to do that. We're not stupid. You just have to show the security there when they open the airlock and go and talk to them. We can infer everything else we need to know from their presence. It's good stuff. I like it. I also uh, like the scene between Bashir and Garak, because both of them are awesome, and because Garak is amazing. This episode isn't, of course, the first Garak episode, but it might be the most Garak-y episode we've had so far. I am especially fond of his ways of answering Bashir's questions. Or, you know, you can't be an out... You know, are you an outcast spy? Well, you can't be both, right? Uh, who said I was either? I also uh, have a quick question, and this one I want to talk about briefly. Why are cloaking devices illegal on Bajor? That's such a strange thing. And it's so clearly Bajoran law. That's what Odo flat out states. But why? Now, we know why the Federation doesn't do cloaks, even though I disagree with it. But Bajor is not a part of the Federation. So do you think this is some kind of trying to curtail smuggling 
that's been rampant, possibly. I mean, we don't really know a whole lot about the black market of Bajor right now, but I can't imagine it's doing particularly well. We don't know if maybe this is them trying to curry favor with the feds by saying, no, we don't have cloaks either. Maybe this is part of their arrangement with the Klingons, or even the Romulans. It's not like both powers won't take an interest in this planet and this wormhole in the future. And indeed, access to the wormhole has been a regular thing for over a year now, right? So that's a little bit of political maneuvering that could be happening. Again, we don't really need to know the answer here, but I will admit that one line just made me go, hmm. And then, of course... <laughs> Odo is very Odo in this episode. He 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 kind of is like, oh, Quark, I know you've got it, and blah, 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 but I can't prove it, so I'm not going to do anything about it yet. And then a woman slaps him, and Odo's reaction is, are you all right? To Quark. Because after all, that is technically, it's not an assault, that would be, uh, oh, I can't think of what it's called, the step down, you know, the misdemeanor, I can't remember what it's called. You know, smack, right? Oh, it's going to bother me. Anyways, so Odo just kind of steps in and is like, you know, is this a problem? Do I need to deal with this? Even though this is quirky talking about it, because this is Odo. Again, probably the single most common thread in this episode is doing what you believe you have to. Now, the reasons for that vary. Uh, Bashir had his conversation about the general who turned in his, you know, in the, in the book, who turned in his general excuse me, the general who turned in his brother because he believed it was for the safety of the state, because he believed that's what he had to do. Something he didn't want to do, but he did it. Um, Kira, um, will, being willing to accept aid to the Cardassians, even though she doesn't really want to do it, because she believes it is the correct thing to do. Um, of course, Natima is the obvious one, and so is Garak, and, and Quark, for that matter, and Odo. Like, you see my point, it's a recurring theme throughout the whole episode. It's good stuff, I like it. But there's also a lovely little bit. <clears throat> so, actually, I want to build up to this really quick. I just want to say I love how Odo is still uh, as observant as always. Quark's, like, trying to, to, to be like, here, here, have a, have a drink. Have a drink on me. Oh, you, um... And Odo just walks over. Your hands are shaking. I love that. And Odo, of course, pays a lot of attention. But the other funny thing is Odo is not the only person who pays a lot of attention in this episode. In fact, there are two other people who basically dance circles around everyone else in this episode. So, they find out that the Carnassian shuttle has been fired on by Cardassians. That really makes me wonder. That, that kind of feels like a, an instance of just go with it. Like, that Cardassian shuttle was extremely close to Deep Space Nine, so it was obviously heading either here or in this direction, and yet was so damaged it barely made it here. Ships that are that damaged generally either A, can't go too fast to outrace whoever there's coming after them, or B, are very easy to track because of how much damage they're leaking in terms of energy and radiation and parts, or fuel as the case may be, maybe even hyperfuel, into the, uh, into the air, into the space. Into the space. I, I, I'm a professional, I swear to God. I'm a little tired, I'm sorry. Out into sensor range, right? Between these two things, I might find myself wondering how the hell they got into this very specific scenario. Because unlike some of the earlier things, I don't actually see an explanation for this. This feels more like, eh, just, just go with it. We need them here, they're damaged here, fine. Just, just leave it alone. 
And of course, then they find out about it. And this is something that I find interesting because Natima does not, she's a terrible liar, which is funny because she's actually a very good liar. What I mean by that, and Mary Crosby nails this, she can lie straight-faced, but her lies are so easy to look around if they are prodded or poked. In other words, she is capable of the act of deception, but not the construction of the lies themselves. Make sense? Because all of her lies are are all found out almost very, very quickly by everyone involved, including one about their shuttle being under attack. Now, so, there's a scene where, uh, I believe uh, Kira actually asks, why would Cardassians fire on other Cardassians? That's another one of those one lines that really made me think. And of course, it makes perfect sense that a Bajoran, especially Kira, would have such a tribal mentality. Now, I tend to speak against tribalism, mostly because it tends to lead to some really bad stuff. But one of the core tenets of tribalism is, you're in the tribe, you're good. You're out of the tribe, you're bad. It's, it's what I usually act refer to as line mentality. Because anything on this side of the line is acceptable, Anything on that side of the line is not. And, this, and thus, line mentality can apply to concepts, ideas, philosophies, persons, uh, genders, cultures, uh, you know, species, whatever. It can apply to basically anything. It is basically like the next step of tribalism. So, of course, it would make perfect sense for a Bajoran to never attack another Bajoran. I mean, it's just been the Bajorans versus the Cardassians forever, right? The only exceptions are the collaborators, and they're not really Bajorans anymore because they're not in the tribe anymore. Now, it's probably just a stupid line thrown away, but I do like the idea that it's still, at this point, hasn't really sunk in, that the Cardassians are just as internecine as anyone else. In fact, as we will learn, and I don't think this is a spoiler, they are probably far more internecine than even, say, the Klingons. And that is really saying something. But anyways. <clears throat> so then there's the scene between Gar- Garrick and Quark. And that scene is poetry. I wish I could just play it for you right here and just be like, Lear, just, just, just watch it. It's so good. Um, but I love the fact that Garrick and Quark both enter the conversation and both follow the rules. I, I don't know what to call it, like the rules of being a spy. I know that sounds weird. Both of them don't say what they really mean, what they really want, don't admit what they really know, until they have sufficiently danced around the other enough that the other has revealed something allowing them to reveal something they know, which allows the other to reveal what they know, and so forth. It's, it's this whole, it, it's this web. And that's a bad phrase. I, I'm just going to go with the dance, because it's a dance. There's rules, there's structure. A game is actually probably a better analogy. You have revealed this card, so I will now real, reveal this card, and so forth and so on. And I point this out because this scene is actually kind of critical to understanding the climax of this episode, in my opinion. I have heard some people presume that Garrick only decided to attack uh, Toran. I had to look up his name. He's only in two scenes, uh, right at the end, because it was b- believed to him that Toran would never keep his deal right at the end. I don't buy that for a second. And I want to build up to that point, okay? So let's talk about Garrick here. Garrick knows how to play the game, and he's damned good at it. He knows how to say what he needs to say, when he needs to say it. It's not about always lying, and it's not about always hiding. There is great value in occasionally revealing either yourself, what you know, or what you can do, 
in the in the service of either learning more about your target or your enemy or whatever, but also been controlling what they might do. Nowhere is this more apparent than when he just walks onto the bridge, uh, ops, of DS9, in the middle of a Cardassian ship showing up and powering up its weapons and says, Commander, we need to talk. And that's all he has to say, because he has now conveyed all the information he needs to to move into this next phase of the negotiation. It's brilliant stuff. But my point is, Quark was able to keep up with him in that initial scene. Quark was right there with him and was just as observant as, as Garrick was. That's the two observant people I mentioned. Both of them were watching each other and knew pretty much everything that was going on. It is not until a threat is, in a veiled manner, laid at Natima that Quark finally abandons the game entirely. And you'll notice, the moment Quark abandons the game, Garrick does too. The moment it's like, all right, cards on the table, let's talk, Garrick similarly responds in kind. It's a nice little touch. And I mention that because it serves as perfect contrast to a later scene. In fact, it actually serves in perfect contrast to two later scenes, but I'm not talking about the Quark and the Tima thing just yet. The first scene I want to talk about is the scene between Garrick and Teron, I think, right? Yeah, Toron, Toron, Toran. Yeah, he's so immemorable. Um, Gull Idiot. Because Gull Idiot walks in, it's, he's even in the same place. It's even in uh, the, the the shop, Garrick's shop. And Toran's like, hey. Garrick immediately starts playing the game. Toran is an idiot. There's a reason I call him Gull Idiot, because he has no subtlety, no nuance. He's just, hi. So, I'm going to manipulate you, but I'm going to do it in the bluntest and stupidest way possible. I'm going to offer you, like, this is a paraphrase, but what he functionally does is he says, I'm going to give you $100 if you give me that toothpick. And he does it in such a way that he automatically assumes that you're too stupid to understand that that toothpick is not worth $100. He just sort of looks down at Garrick that much, or is that much of an idiot himself. Garrick, of course, then appeal, appears to leap at the opportunity, of course. I see your point. I would rather not be here mending, mending suits for the rest of my life. Right? Actually, it just occurred to me one quick thing. Cork actually did start playing the game again right at the end of their interaction. I'll take the dress anyways and make sure it's mended. Nice line. Anyways, so the interactions between Garrick and Torrin, complete opposite. Torrin's just like, hey... Got this hammer. Plunk, plunk, plunk. You know, it, and Garrick just dances, vocally dances around him. It's like fighting someone who's standing still, right? And not fighting back. Or doing one of those, like, super slow wind-up attacks that's real easy to dodge. You know what I'm talking about. Really obvious, I'm going to hit you now. And you've hit him, like, 30 times as they're doing their wind-up. All of this culminates at the final scene, basically, of the episode, where you know, the Natima and Quark stuff happens. Again, we'll cover that in a second. But then Garrick is like, hi, and he's talking loudly and taking his time. Now, I point that out because Garrick, I mean, a little bit of this is future knowledge, but even in this episode, Garrick knows when to act and when not to act. And he goes out of his way to not act. He pulls a James Bond villain thing and just sits there talking to them. But I don't think that's bad writing. 
That is just Garrick waiting for Torrin to spring his trap. Because Torrin's an idiot, and Garrick knew this was coming. After all, while, so we'd have the second phaser immediately ready to go. No, this was Garak, who had come to the conclusion that the place that he has his loyalty towards is more important than whatever gains he might get out of betraying that loyalty. Garak has decided what he has to do and believes in the cause that he is, is, is working towards. So Torrin comes out, oh, you're an idiot, ho, ho, ho. And he is more or less a legitimate Bond villain. I'm better than you. Give me the phaser. Yep, yep. <clears throat> You're an idiot. Did you really think that for something so minor, you would actually get some benefit of being allowed to come home? Toof, toof. Yep, I'm afraid it's time to kill you guys. Oh, and he doesn't, he doesn't track Garrick. He doesn't frisk him. He doesn't scan him. He doesn't, he literally turns his back on him. Like he's like over here and Garrick's over there. No, Garrick outplayed him at every turn. And then, of course, well, what are you waiting for? Go, because now is the time to act. And we've had our time for inaction. Now is the time to, to, to get on with it. And you know, then we have the touching farewell and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, Garrick even admits the absolute truth to Quark. Why'd you do it? Because I love Cardassia. And this is probably, I would say, the second major character trait we have firmly established for Garak. His loyalty to what he believes in as Cardassian. The first, if you're wondering, is what I just mentioned. His ability to dance around, act, and, di and not act. Like I mentioned, you know, the, the precision that he works with. Anyways, so, let's talk about Natima and Quark. Now, first of all, I've already gushed about both of the actors' performance and about the way they're both designed in this episode. I'm not really going to cover too much of that. I do want to say that uh, I really like how... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. She so clearly ousts herself as someone who not only believes him, but also trusts him. My favorite aspect of this is a very minor point that you just kind of gloss over if you're not paying attention. When Cork is trying to convince her to stay, she flat out says, no, I'm a member of the Resistance. The Resistance movement needs me. We need to have revolution. And she just says that to Quark. Now, that's important, because if she really meant the lies that she's bad at constructing, that I mentioned earlier, then she would not trust Quark. She would believe he would betray her and as a consequence of knowing that information. But obviously, she does trust him. Because without hesitating, without even thinking about it, she so casually ousts herself in a way that is imminently damaging to her. Right? And <laughs> I want to say, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. I want to say how much I like Quark is still himself. We're just getting more dimensions to him in this episode. I have heard the complaint before that Quark is a little bit too heroic in this episode, and I don't actually agree. There's too many signs that this is still Quark. Let me put this to you another way. What I like is the fact that Quark is capable of being someone who is selfish, while at the same time being someone who is selfless. Someone who actually has that kind of depth and complexity to him, but yeah, he cares about the bottom line and money and profit and business and his functionality and what he wants. But he also still cares about her and what she wants and what she needs and is more than capable of reaching out to help someone else basically just to help them. 
I like that. I like that a lot. And it adds more depth to his character. So I don't think I could qualify Quark as heroic in this episode. Not really. He's not a good guy. He's not like... God, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a really definitive example in Star Trek. I mean, I like to go to James Rayner over in StarCraft when I think of it. You know, he's not a good guy. He's not, this is right, and that's all we're doing forever. But he is still someone who you can see why he leans so hard onto the good side of the spectrum, despite not actually being a good guy. It's funny to me because I could see in different circumstances how Quark, with, even with his dimensions to him and his complexity, could have leaned more onto the bad side of the equation. But at the same time, I find myself wondering if it is his failures, the, all the crap he's been through. Remember, his financial uh, career prior to coming to Deep Space Nine was a train wreck. We don't actually know that yet, but we will learn that in the future. And then he ends up getting this bar, and it's like, ugh. And even despite all this, he still sold food to Bajorans, which was illegal. Now, that's another nice little tidbit, because he sold food to Bajorans. He didn't give it to them. But the fact that he was still willing to reach out to help someone while still helping himself gets him across my point very nicely. Anyways, so then Natima shoots him. <laughs> and then she's like, freaks out. Like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I don't have the lowest setting. I, I didn't mean to. It just kind of went off by accident. And I love this because everything up till this point is, is, is actually what I call Babylon 5 effect. For those of you who haven't heard me talk about this, Babylon 5 effect is when you go through a fictional work and it's, it's portrayed as A, whatever A is, right? And it's designed so that you're supposed to see it as if it is A. However, then you learn something which changes it. So then when you go back and rewatch it, you see that B is what was going on the whole time, right? Knowledge and perspective change the context. First time you see this episode, it's pretty clear, especially given the, the way the actress portrays her, that Natima is supposed to come across as someone who really doesn't want anything to do with Quark. All of the signs that she truly loves him and cares about him and is still just as upset about this as he is are actually very subtle and the kind of things you probably won't notice unless you're A, paying close attention, or B, have already seen the episode. But once you know what to look for, it's, it's all right there. Like I said earlier about the lie construction problem. Because she keeps trying to come up with these lies on the fly, and she's nowhere near as dynamic or adaptable as Quirk is at lying on the fly. Which brings me to another thing. I mentioned earlier the dialogue. One of the better aspects of the dialogue is the fact that Quirk manages to effectively, successfully... You know, not like a stupid, typical Ferengi argument, which is just dumb and has no basis in logic. No, he successfully talks and maneuvers his way around all of her points in order to reach, basically convince her to the position that her staying with him is an acceptable outcome. Now, what I love about that is she then says, okay, I'll stay, because she is good at deceiving, not making up lies. That's a very simple lie. I will stay. And, of course, Quark believes it. Because, after all, he has actually made a very convincing argument. Then Odo comes in. Now, this is a good scene. Odo apologizes for arresting her. And he is extremely polite about it. He's just like, no, I'm sorry. You know, he's very formal. Hands clasped behind his back. You know, actually kind of like this there. You know, just, I, I am sorry, but I'm afraid you are under arrest. 
And and Cork is the one's like, whoa, whoa, and she, she she of course goes with it. And that leads us to the prisoner exchange. And am I the only person who remembers that they were supposed to have released all of the prisoners? Right? Like, I swear that was in a previous episode where they talked about, oh, we've released all Bajoran prisoners. Oh, but now they've got more. Now, this could just be an, another typical continuity flaw. But I like to think that it's not, and that this is actually just the Cardassians being willing to release some of their prisoners they don't talk about in exchange for, you know, having someone that they really care about. It is also another sign of the Cardassians being willing to play politics. That theme hasn't really started yet, but that's going to start growing a lot more in the coming season. So I wanted to point it out, because to me, this feels like the first time they're really willing to bat at that particular angle. Most times prior to this, they're either incredibly overt, you know, and, and actually military, or it's just Golducat and not the Cardassians as an organization, so. <sighs> now, um, I mentioned the Torrin scene, which actually happens here. Um, there's this little bit where, so I, I'm sorry, I actually meant to mention this earlier when I mentioned how Quark can be a good guy and a bad guy at the same time. Another nice sign of that is when he has his dialogue with Odo. Now, I wrote down, so first he tries the societal economic argument, which, of course, makes perfect sense. That is the first argument that is most likely to work with Odo. Odo believes big in systems, right? He doesn't try justice, which I actually find funny, but anyways. So then he tries to, uh, he tries the truth, then he tries... He basically loses control for a second and actually rants at Odo. And you'll notice Odo respects him for being honest. And then Quark is like, there's just a second there of Quark being like, oh, uh, okay. And then he tries to go back to the lying. I don't think Quark fully realized in that moment that it was the fact that he was being completely bluntly honest that caught Odo's attention. So then he keep, goes back to his, you know, oh, well, um, the fake offer. The, the personal plea, do it for me. And then it gets to the point where you can tell Quark, in character, is sufficiently emotionally compromised that he loses his greatest character, his greatest asset as a character. If you have a look at his character sheet, his ability to dynamically adapt to conversation on the fly is through the roof. We've actually talked about this before. His ability to... to, to Weave and, and Bob with the punches, verbally speaking, is, is fantastic. I mean, he was even able to keep up with Garrick earlier. But he is, he is so emotionally compromised, he just can't. And he just, he just gets straight to it. He just starts begging. He literally gets on his knees and begs. And Odo's like, okay. I'm satisfied, because Odo had already decided he was going to let them go, after all. In fact, I guarantee you that the only thing Odo was waiting on was for Quark to show up to rescue them. Because Odo's not an idiot. And Odo very strongly suspected the cloak, too, which he's willing to let go under these circumstances. And you kind of see how this all lines up rather nicely. So, oh, I'm sorry. But getting back to my point about Quark being both a good guy and a bad, you know, selfless and selfish at the same time. Quark, you know, goes through his whole thing and says, hang on, so you're not doing it for me? And Odo says, no. To which Quark literally embraces him and says, thank you. That means I don't owe you anything. And I love that for two reasons. Three reasons. The third reason is 
let go. That makes me laugh every time I see it. The first reason I like that is because of what we talked about earlier. The fact that despite the fact that he does want to help her and them, he still has enough self-interest to be like, oh, no debt. The second thing I like about that is Cork, strangely enough, is the kind of person who tends to honor his debts. We've kind of seen this before, and we will definitely see this in the future, but I like that added little detail there. There is a certain type of corporate mentality, usually a villain when it comes to fiction and real life, of, of the kind of person who has no honor in an agreement, a deal, or a debt. Then why would I pay this back? Just kill him. There we go. You know, that kind of a thing. I'm sure you've seen this kind of character before. I hope you haven't seen anyone like this in real life. Anyways, so I like that a little nuance there. So, um, yeah, actually, I don't have anything else to say. Because then we have the Torrin scene, which I've already discussed at length. We have the Natima scene. And Natima's like, I have to go. And Cork says, oh, so all I have to do to get you back is for the Cardassians to become a free and democratic society? So, I like to think, though we have seen no signs of it in STO, and the Gamma Quadrant expansion has come out, although not yet fully continued as of my recording this, I like to think that Natima and Cork did actually end up together once the Cardassians became a free and democratic society. And Cork actually became significantly financially successful. So you can kind of see why that just makes sense to me. And not that I'm interested in shipping, but I have to admit it would be satisfying to me, mostly because I think Cork and Natima could both use some happiness. I hope you've enjoyed my rumination on this one, and I will see you guys next week.